Let's pray together. Father, you are a mighty Savior. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, that you have shown mercy to us by sending your one and only Son to save us. We didn't deserve it, and yet you did it anyway. And so we have hope in this life and in the next. So Lord, we pray now that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. The only one of Jesus' miracles that appears in all four Gospels is his feeding of the 5,000. And in John's account of what happened, it says that a great multitude was following Jesus and was listening to Jesus' teaching. And it says that there were about 5,000 men, which when you figure in the women and children, it's easily north of 10,000 people that were following and listening to Jesus that day. John says that when Jesus saw this multitude coming toward him, he turns to Philip and he asks him a question. He says, Philip, where are we going to buy bread that these may eat? Keep in mind, when Jesus asks questions like this, it's not because he doesn't know the answer or what he's about to do. It's because he's trying to draw out and expose a response from his disciples. And in this case, the disciple was Philip, and so it was a test for Philip. And so Philip answers. He says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. So in today's dollars, 200 denarii would be like 24,000 Dollars, And Philip looks at the need and he says, $24,000 won't cover it. We've got the need and he looks at what their provision is and he says, we don't have enough. There's another disciple who pipes up at this point, Andrew, and he says, well, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? So Andrew also looks at the need and at the provision and then he concludes... We don't have enough. Now, if it came down to the money that they had in their pockets or to the food that the people happened to bring with them, then Philip and Andrew would have been right. They didn't have enough. But that was the problem. It didn't come down to what they could see with their eyes. It came down to what Jesus could do. And he is able to do more than anyone can ask or imagine. So Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, have the people sit down. And then from there, Jesus rains down bread from heaven upon all of his people. And he shows them what a lavish provision that he is able and willing to give to his people. I wonder how many of us are kind of like Philip and Andrew when we face these kinds of needs in our life. You lose your job. You have no income. Your checks are about to start to bounce. You don't know where the next month's rent is coming from. Or maybe you get a bad report from the doctor. There's no way to make the chronic pain subside that anyone can see. You're just going to have to live with it. And you don't know how you were going to have the heart to bear the trial. And so you look at the need 
and then you look at what you have in your pockets or what you have in your own will and resolve, and you see an enormous gap between the problem and your ability to meet the challenge. And so you conclude, I don't have enough. I just can't do this. As a result, what happens is you develop these ruts of unbelief in your life when it comes to trials that you face as you despair. And you form habits of the heart that don't look to God in faith. And instead, you form habits of the heart that lead you to despair when you can't see how needs will be met in light of your own limited resources. And so these kinds of habits of the heart eventually will render you unprepared to face the kinds of trials that are inevitably going to have to be a part of our lives in this fallen world. They also make you unprepared to face the biggest trial of all, the fact that we're all going to have to face death one day. Death is that one thing that looms on the horizon for all of us and that we can do nothing about. And it is a despair-inducing prospect for so many people because they look at the problem and then they look at what they have in the tank to cope with it and they conclude, I don't have enough. I, I can't face this. And it's at that moment that the darkest kind of despair sets in because it is also at that moment that you begin to realize, I just don't have enough. But here's the good news. It's also at that moment that God is able to show up with lavish provision so that we don't have to despair at the prospect of our own demise. If you haven't already, I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 35 to 49. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 35 to 49. Paul is writing to some Corinthian believers that are forming habits of the heart that are making them unprepared to face death. Indeed, some of them are even denying the resurrection from the dead. Now, they aren't denying Jesus' resurrection, apparently, but they are denying that believers will be raised bodily just as Jesus was. And so Paul says to them in verse 12, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And so this entire chapter... Paul is trying to confront this denial of our own resurrection from the dead. But it's not until this paragraph that we're looking at this morning that Paul really begins to confront what is at the heart of their skepticism. It's a lack of faith in the power of God to do what he says he can and will do for his people, to rescue us from the curse of death. And so the Corinthians are under this mistaken impression that our physical resurrection from the dead can't happen. And so what Paul does is he's going to confront their error with a series of images that expose the folly of their denial of the resurrection. And so we're going to look at these series of images in three points. Here they are. We're going to see the resurrection as a full bloom. We're going to see the resurrection as God's power. And then we're going to see the resurrection as a second Adam. Now, the resurrection as a full bloom begins there in verse 35. So everybody look at verse 35. Paul writes this. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, notice that Paul is employing 
a style of argument that we, know, we now know is called the diatribe, which involves a kind of posing a rhetorical question and then answering that question, whatever it is. It's a really powerful style of argument because it allows the writer to raise issues and objections and then to confront them. It's really prominent in, in Paul's letter to the Romans, in fact. You'll see it there a lot. But it also appears here in this letter to the Corinthians. But there's one part of this diatribe style in 1 Corinthians that's different from Romans. In Romans, whenever he poses these rhetorical questions, it's like, it, it's like the question is coming from the mouth of an imaginary interlocutor. But in 1 Corinthians, his interlocutor, his interlocutor is not imaginary. Um, there really are people in Corinth who are saying these kinds of things. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And so when Paul says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? He's not raising a question just for the sake of argument. He's raising an actual objection to the resurrection that existed in the hearts and the minds of some of the people in Corinth. So here's the deal. Some of the people in the congregation were actually questioning the resurrection. And they were doing so based on a very specific philosophical objection to the very idea of physical bodies coming back to life. So they ask this question, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now notice that that second question is actually clarifying and sharpening the meaning of the first question that they're asking. How are the dead raised? That question is not a question about how it's possible or who's going to do the raising. Everyone knew that God would do it. The question is about what form the resurrection body would, would take. With what kind of body do they come? That's the question that they're asking. So Paul, along with all the other apostles, they proclaimed a physical resurrection from the dead. But now some of the Corinthians are saying... Well, you know, maybe it's not physical after all. Um, one commentator, Tom Schreiner, he says it this way. He's, he's commenting on the questions about uh, the questions that the Corinthians are asking. And he says this. He says, the questions are not innocent or genuine. The questions are raised to dispute the credibility of the resurrection. They are taunts by those influenced by Greco-Roman paganism. And they throw down the gauntlet to anyone who espouses the resurrection. Paul identifies who asks them as fools since they have not truly reckoned with God's power. So the Corinthians' problem in asking these questions, it wasn't with the idea that God brings life after death. Their problem was with the idea that God brings physical life after death. They don't have necessarily a problem with you know, immaterial, disembodied life after death, but it's the physical life after death that's the issue. They were influenced by the Platonic spirit of the age in which they lived. And it had an absolute aversion to the idea that the body could be reanimated after death. The Platonic ideal of their day sought to transcend this material world. For them, death was a way to shuffle off this mortal coil that we know of as the body. And so they would think of death as enabling us to kind of graduate to a higher plane of existence which does not include being stuck in these diseased and dying bodies that all of us have. So in their platonic way of thinking, it would be a step backwards to be tied to such a body, 
to have it raised up and then to live in it forever in the age to come. And so, so I can understand this perspective. Maybe you can understand this, this perspective. You know, in my body, I have rheumatoid arthritis. I have a heart arrhythmia. Um, the circulation in my hands doesn't work right anymore. I just found out Friday that I'm allergic to cats and dogs and bluegrass. I live in the bluegrass state. <laughs> this is bad. The older I get, the more infirmities accumulate. Is it really encouraging to think that God would bring this body and all of its painful problems back to life? I mean, woohoo, rheumatoid arthritis forever. <laughs> Crazy, unnerving heartbeats for eternity. Um, no. But this is how the Corinthians are thinking. They are thinking of the resurrection as if it were the resuscitation of fallenness. They believe that the resurrection is absurd because they have drunk the platonic Kool-Aid that only sees weakness and limitation in physicality. That's the only way they can imagine physicality, and so we have to get rid of it. And so that's why Paul speaks as harshly as he does in the next verse. Look at verse 36. You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Literally, Paul says, fool. But it's, it's not the pejorative term for fool that Jesus forbids in Matthew 5, 22. Rather, Paul uses the term for fool that appears throughout the book of Proverbs to refer to someone who lacks prudence and good judgment. It's the same word that appears in Psalm 14, 1, in fact, where it says that the fool says in his heart that there is no God. What that reveals is that the basic error of the fool is that he fails to take into account God. He fails to take God into account. He forms his opinions and his beliefs about the world and his place in it, but he does not have God as the source and the fount of wisdom, which means that he's building his house on sand. He's a fool. So Paul calls the resurrection denier a fool because he's failing to take God into account. The resurrection is not merely the resuscitation of fallenness. It's a transformation to glory. So you take Jesus, for example. Was his resurrection a resuscitation of fallenness? Or was he raised in a glorious, perfect body fit to ascend into heaven? We know the answer to that. He was raised in power and in glory. And so Paul invokes this really brilliant analogy to show what the resurrection is really like. The, res the resurrection is like a seed planted in the ground. What gets planted in the ground is both like and unlike what comes out of the ground. It's like what goes in the ground in that in the case of an apple tree, apple trees only grow from apple seeds, right? It's like it in that sense. It's unlike it in that the seed, what comes forth from the seed, is so much more glorious than the bare seed itself. You see the difference here. It's like and unlike. But the glory of the apple tree can only follow the dying seed. That's the point. The seed must go into the ground and die before its transformation into a life-giving tree. 
And so it is, Paul's arguing with the resurrection from the dead. When you die and they put you into the ground, your resurrection is not going to be the resurrection of a corpse, like, like a zombie or something. Nor is it going to be merely resuscitation to your previous fallenness. It's going to be a complete transformation to glory. It's still going to be you. It's not going to be, you're not going to be so changed that it's not you anymore. So in my case, only Denny glory can come from a Denny seed planted in the ground. That's it. And it's the same thing for you. It will be all you, but it will be a you transformed into the glorious image of Jesus Christ, which means in my case, no more RA, no more Reynolds, no more AFib. It will be no more dying. It will be an inheritance in which it is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1 4. So look at verse 37. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. Now, pay attention here because he's, he's drawing out this analogy of seed and then what comes forth from the seed. And it's as if he's saying, look, Corinthians, don't think that the body that goes into the ground is going to come out just like it went in. Your body goes in like a planted seed, but it comes out transformed into glory. But how is it that such imperishable glory should come forth from a perishable seed? Well, that's what he answers in verse 38. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. The transformation from perishable to imperishable and from dishonor to, to glory happens because God himself is the one who gives to each one a body just as God determines so the decisive element in our transformation and indeed in our, our, our salvation is not what resources we bring to the table. The, the decisive element is what resources God brings to the table and God brings infinite power to the table. The same power that spoke worlds into existence is the very power, power that will give resurrection life to your fallen body. But if we fail to see the power of God and only look at our own fallenness, that hope will become less and less clear to us. And that's, I think, the real danger for us, is that we would lose sight of the power of God in such a way that we don't have an anticipation that he's going to work on our behalf and raise us at the end. If you are doubting the power of God, that's what will happen. If you've been at Kenwood Baptist Church long enough, then no doubt you've heard me or Jim or one of the other elders tell the story of how Matt D'Amico came to be our first full-time uh, staff pastor at the church. Uh, Matt came on several years ago part-time after our last worship pastor, Josh Philpott, um, left. Josh was also part-time, and, and he, took a, he, had, he left because he needed a full-time position, and so he moved to Houston. 
It was really discouraging to, to lose Josh, and yet we were so grateful that the Lord provided Matt, and we were, thought it was wonderful. We were so much smaller back then. We had a much smaller budget. We couldn't afford a full-time salary, and so he comes on part-time. But we really knew at the outset that, um, you know, this part-time status quo couldn't go on indefinitely. I mean, he's got to feed his, his family. He would eventually need a full-time position. So after, I forgot how long it was, Matt, a year or two of, 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 of doing the part-time thing, the elders began praying about how we could bring him on full-time. We didn't have any full-time positions at that point because we didn't have any money, but we wanted him to be the first. And so we entered this season of praying and of asking the Lord to make a way for this to happen. Otherwise, we knew we'd lose another worship pastor because of a lack of funds. But in that season of prayer... We combed through the budget, and we cut everything that we could cut, and we were still short, like about $20,000, $20,000 short. And so we planned this meeting uh, of the elders one afternoon right uh, during potluck, right after church, and we were going to come together, and we are going to talk about what to do next because we didn't have $20,000 to close this gap, and we were thinking, do we spend out of the savings? What, what are we going to do here? We didn't know. So we set this meeting to discuss what to do next because Matt was out of time as a part-timer. So that Sunday, uh, right before the meeting, we had all looked at the need and we had looked at what we had and we concluded we don't have enough. What happened next was actually one of the most glorious things that's ever happened since I've been here at, at, at Kenwood. Just before Jim came upstairs to the meeting, John Watson hands Jim this envelope that had just come in the mail that week. And Jim comes up to the meeting with the envelope in his hand, sort of stunned, and he says, you're not going to believe this. And then he reads this letter to us in the envelope, and it's from an attorney who just settled an estate for a former member of the church that none of us knew, who was there long before. And the letter informed us that this former member had included us in his will, included the church in his will, and that's why there's a check enclosed for $20,000 made out to Kenwood Baptist Church. And this will that we were named in was made out years in advance of that day. Which means that God had already set in motion the answer to our prayer before we even asked. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. The fool is the one who doesn't take into account what God can do. When we came into that room, we had looked at the need and then looked at the contributions and said, we can't, we don't, we can't do it. We don't have enough. But that's really only true if we don't take God into account. And in that case, we asked him for help and he helped. He came through. He surprised us. We're stunned. We're still stunned. And what I'm trying to say is, is when it comes to trials in our life, when it comes to the ultimate trial in our life, death, we can't fail to take God into account. It's foolish to do that. He will never fail us. He will never fail to come through for us. He, will, he always has enough resource and provision, and he always knows when and how to give it. And he will not let his holy ones, none of us, he will not allow us to undergo decay. When we close our eyes in death, we can rest assured that he will open them again. And we will see him face to face 
on the other side, transformed and glorious. We cannot fail to take God into account when we think of our own death. And so Paul is presenting in verses 35 through 38 the resurrection as a full bloom. The resurrection is, is not resuscitated fallenness. Okay, It is a glory that we have been transformed and raised up to a new life. But the second thing he says here is that he speaks of the resurrection as God's power. And in particular, God's power to create. Look at verse 39. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Now, if you want to understand what Paul is arguing in this section in verses 39 to 44, you have to see the error and remember the error that he's confronting. The Corinthian error is that physical resurrection doesn't make sense because it's absurd to think that God would resuscitate fallenness and imperfection. That's why they didn't like materiality, didn't like physical bodies. But Paul has just told them that resurrecting physical bodies isn't the same thing as resuscitating fallenness. That's not what it is. Why? Because God transforms what was fallen into something glorious and unfallen. As verse 38 says, but God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives it its own body. But that raises a question. If God is doing this, what evidence is there that God can create all different kinds of bodies? Like you've got a fallen body, then you have a resurrection body. Can God really do this thing? Well, Paul is explaining here in this section that there's evidence all over creation that God knows how to create different kinds of bodies, bodies that are appropriate to their own domain. In fact, Paul begins making direct allusions to the creation account of Genesis 1 and all the diversity of the created beings that you see there. So notice in verse 39, not all flesh is the same. Is the same. There's one kind for humans, there's another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another of the moon and another of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. What's he talking about here? He's talking about all the differences in creation. Notice in those three verses how Paul's language is paralleling that of Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, those, all those things listed there are listed as a, as a part of God's creation. God makes man in his own image. He makes the beasts of the earth. He makes winged creatures, fish. And before that, God makes the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars also. And so it's as if Paul is trying to remind his readers of what the Bible says about God's power in creating a diverse creation. God specializes in diversity. If he can make the sun, moon, and stars, and also man and beasts and bird and fish, then what other evidence do we need that he knows how to make different kinds of bodies? Not only that, look at verse 40. God knows how to make heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. Did you see that? There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. The heavenly bodies there is an allusion to the fact that the, he the heavenly bodies of the sun and the moon and all of that, the earthly bodies is an allusion to man and beasts and birds and fish. All of that from Genesis 1, heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. God made them all. There's a glory that belongs to each. This is evidence that God is an expert at creating and then distinguishing heavenly and earthly bodies. 
Do you see how that's relevant to you? If that is the case, then he knows how to create a heavenly body for you that is more glorious than the earthly body you now inhabit. And so Paul says in verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Genesis 1 is clear that God knows how to make different kinds of bodies. So it is with the resurrection from the dead. The same power that created the sun, moon, and the stars, and me and you, will be brought to bear to transform our perishable body into an imperishable one. Which means you're not going to have a diable body anymore. You won't be killable. You won't be subject to sick. You'll be, you'll be imperishable. Verse 43. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. The idea of sowing is the idea of planting seed. It's planted, it's fallen, it dies, and then something comes out, right? It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. The planted seed is dishonorable and weak because it's fallen, but it will be raised as glorious and powerful because it'll be unfallen. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Now, I should mention here, that this verse has kind of confused people over the years, especially because of a misleading interpretation like the one you see reflected in the New Revised Standard Version. The New Revised Standard Version renders this as, as it is sown as a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a physical body, then there's also a spiritual body. And some people have misunderstood this to mean that our physical body is that which dies and that our spirit is the only part that survives in the resurrection and that lives after our body dies. That's a huge mistake here, isn't it? That's not what he's saying at all. The natural body refers not to the physicality of the body, but to the fallenness of the body. In fact, that word for natural is the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 2.14, where Paul says the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And so natural is not a synonym for physical, it's a synonym for fallen, or that which is devoid of the spirit. And so the term basically means the same thing here in, in chapter 15, verse 44. Our bodies are, are, are sown as fallen bodies, but they are raised as spiritual bodies. They are spiritual in the sense that they've been recreated and transformed by the spirit of Almighty God. But they are nevertheless physical bodies unfallen, physical, spiritual bodies. So yes, here's the deal. There's abundant evidence in creation that God knows how to make heavenly bodies the kind that don't succumb to age or to decay, but that are glorious and imperishable forever. And to miss that is to underestimate the power of God to create as he wills. He can do this. You know, Jesus was once confronted by a group of Sadducees who themselves underestimated the power of God in the resurrection. In fact, they didn't believe in the resurrection at all. And they got into it with Jesus one time to try and show how foolish a belief it was. And it says in Matthew 22 that they came to him. It says, on that day, some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came to him and questioned him, saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died and had no offspring. 
left to uh, his wife, to his brother, so also the second and third, down to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. And you can see what they're asking there. Their reasoning was pretty simple as they're trying to trap Jesus. Um, they're saying there can't be any such thing as a resurrection because if there were, then this woman would be married to seven men in heaven, which means that she would be an adulterer, which means she would be breaking God's law. And there's no breaking of God's law in heaven. Therefore, there can be no resurrection because this situation would exist. You see what they're doing there? They're trying to prove to Jesus his, his belief in the resurrection is wrong. They thought they had him trapped, but I really love how Jesus responds to him because he says, you don't know what you're talking about. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. What was their failure? They know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You don't know what you're talking about. Jesus said to these guys, you, have, you don't have a clue here. And it's not just because you misunderstand Scripture. You do misunderstand Scripture. It's because you don't understand the power of God. If you underestimate the power of God, you are going to miss salvation because our rescue from sin and death happens as a direct result of the power of God. Indeed, the gospel itself, Romans 1.16, is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1.4 says that it bears witness to the fact that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power through the resurrection. It's that very same power that's going to raise us up. For, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. So ask yourself, is there anyone here who is underestimating the power of God? How would you know if you are? Well, if you're despairing in the face of trial... If you're despairing in the face of death, that is one evidence that you may be underestimating the power of God and his good purposes towards you with that power and what he's promised to do. If that is where you are, then I want to encourage you to take a look around you. And by around you, I mean go outside, not this minute, but go outside and look at the sun for a minute. You will not be able to set your eyes on that glory. When the, when the sun goes down, look at the moon and the stars. Look at the heavenly bodies. Look at that glory. And think about what it means that God spoke all of that into existence. And think about the fact that that same power will come to bear to raise you up as well. And if you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear and you have nothing to despair. He will not let you down. He won't. He will come through in the decisive moment for all of us. So Paul speaks about the resurrection as a full bloom. The resurrection is God's power. And finally, and briefly, 
the resurrection as a second Adam. Everybody look at verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, this verse is picking up on verse 44 where Paul has said, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. But Paul now is trying to ground that truth in the teaching of the Old Testament. And to do this, he gives a kind of free quotation of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, where it says that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man, you know, Hebrew word for man, you know what it is? Adam. And Adam, Adam, became a living being. And so Paul's saying the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So Paul is saying that the first Adam from Genesis is a type of another Adam who would be born many years later. The first Adam became a living being by the very breath of God. In a similar way, the last Adam wouldn't merely be a living being. He would be a life giver. Why? Because the last Adam is none other than God himself in the flesh. But look at verse 46. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. Adam first. Then Jesus, the fallen man first, and then the unfallen man. Verse 47, the first man was from earth, a man of the dust. The second man is from heaven. God formed Adam. God formed the first Adam from the dust of the ground. Therefore, he is literally from the earth. But the second Adam comes not from the earth, but from heaven, right? Jesus says, I am the true bread which comes out of heaven. Verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Every descendant of Adam, which means every single human being who's ever lived, except for Jesus. But all the rest of us, every descendant of Adam inherits fallenness from Adam. Adam was a sinner. We're sinners. Adam died and returned to the dust. We're going to die and return to the dust. Unless, of course, by faith we attach ourselves to the man of heaven and, and we're born again. And if we are joined by faith to the man of heaven, then we also participate in his resurrection. Our destiny won't be the dust. Our destiny will be deliverance from death, just like the man of heaven. So verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So here's the thing. It's not hard to believe that we bear the imprint of Adam on us. We are so much like him. We're so fallen, so weak, so infirm, so sinful, so fearful. But if we trust in Christ, just as sure as we have borne the image of Adam, so also we will bear the image of the man of heaven of Jesus, the Son of God himself. And that image will reach its fullness when he raises us up by his power. And he does what Philippians 3.21 says is going to happen. He transforms the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. This is... Really good news for us, y'all. This is why we don't have to cower in the corner every day when we get up in despair. 
This is it. We don't have to fear. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And that is the best news in the world. I want to read to you uh, one of my favorite hymns as we close. Because I think it sums up so much of the truth from this. You all know God moves in a mysterious way. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us to see how your purposes are ripening fast in our fallen bodies that scare us and threaten us with a demise that is terrifying? Father, would you help us to see that what is planted in the ground won't stay there and it won't come out like it went in, but it will come forth and it will come forth glorious. I'm praying that for these, your servants. I'm praying it for myself as I think about the ever-hastening day that I will take my last breath. And all of us are facing that, Lord. And we know that you've given us these words so that we would look at that with courage and with hope and with steadfast, steadfastness. And Lord, I pray that you would give us courage and hope in the face of what terrifies us. And I pray that that courage and hope would bear witness to your gospel and would glorify you and that it would happen all the way in each of us, all the way to the end. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.